0: listening to footprints on our hearts a podcast about baby loss legacy and learning to live again with me Alison ingleby the baby loss community is one that no one wants to join but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief because all children leave footprints on our hearts Good morning and welcome to episode 53 of Footprints on Our Hearts. And if you're listening to this when it goes out and you live in the UK, I hope that this week's announcement about lockdown easing, restrictions and the pathway out of lockdown has hope you has has made you feel a little bit better and given you a little bit of hope for the future. It's um, really nice to have an end date to work towards and I know that June feels a long time away but in the grand scheme of things, you know, we've been through so much already and so many months and hopefully this will be the final push. To get out of there um, and I have to say I'm very much looking forward to being able to see people again being able to see our whole family together being able to spend time indoors with people um, which will feel a bit of a novelty the last time you had a person into your house um, and hopefully hopefully you know the great British summer will be another nice one this year so we can make the most of time outdoors and um, before those restrictions fully ease so in today's interview, um, I talked to Clint about his son, Eli, um, who was diagnosed with an uh, anencephaly, which I've probably just butchered that pronunciation. It's one of those tongue twisters that I just can't really get my head around. Anyway, um, with that condition during pregnancy and um, Clint and his wife faced that impossible choice that, you know, many other couples and, and many of you maybe listening to this may have faced around whether to continue with a pregnancy um, or to terminate the pregnancy. And they decided, after a lot of thought and reflection, to continue. But that effectively meant that during the rest of Gillian's pregnancy, they were preparing both for Eli's birth and for his death, which, wow, just the hardest thing to have to prepare for and really not how anyone wants their pregnancy to go. But interestingly, talking to Clint, it sounds as if it actually gave them a bit of peace and a bit of time to plan for that, even though, you know, as babies always do, they always like to give us little surprises and Eli did arrive a little bit earlier than they were expecting. So they didn't quite have time to do all the preparations and things that they wanted. So, we have a really good chat about Eli about losing their second son road to miscarriage, and also about clint's faith and particularly the role of lamentation in faith, which is something that he's explored um quite a lot following eli's death um, and I hope that you know whether you're a person of faith or not, I think it's quite interesting a discussion to listen to and there's there's bits and pieces you can take from it so I hope you enjoy this week's episode and have a good weekend and hopefully you're feeling a little bit brighter this week take care Today I'm joined on the podcast by Clint, who has lost two sons at different stages of pregnancy. He blogs as a grieving father and explores the role of grief and lamentation in faith. Welcome to the podcast, Clint, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start by talking about your first son, Eli. How was your journey to getting pregnant with him?
1: Um, Our journey to getting pregnant was was not difficult. Uh, We, so we had been married five years and we kind of had this master plan uh, of what we, what we intended or how we intended to start a family. And it was around the five-year mark that we wanted to start trying to start a family. And my wife, Jillian, was pregnant with Eli before we learned his diagnosis over our five-year anniversary. So, Oh, wow it was, you know, the timing seemed like it was working out perfectly in terms of how we anticipated it. Obviously things didn't go as planned, but yeah. And even in that, I mean, we had been talking for years about our vision for family and, and for children and all that. So um, we're, we're planners and
0: <laughs> like it when things go to plan, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah. And it, it, it seemed like it was going to plan in in terms of the timing of everything. So Yeah, I know that many people have difficulty even getting pregnant in the first place. That wasn't our experience. So it was right around five years after being married.
0: And had you had any experience of baby loss in terms of friends or family who'd experienced baby loss before Eli?
1: Not significantly. Um, We have friends who have struggled with infertility, friends who have experienced child loss through adoption in the foster care system. And we were aware of child loss and miscarriage and difficulties in that arena. So we weren't, I don't think we were ignorant to it. We had some friends who had experienced hardship in the realm of family planning, but no one close to us who had lost, you know, a child through stillbirth, or anything like that.
0: And how did the first part of Jillian's pregnancy go? And at what point did you find out that there was something wrong?
1: So the first trimester, Jillian was really sick. She actually lost weight and really, really struggled. So it was not, I mean, even with the fir- within the first couple of weeks of us finding out, we realized that it was going to be difficult. And we were pretty on guard, like because we are aware of miscarriage and um, the struggles that uh, um, parents can have through pregnancy. Yeah. For a while we were on guard, especially because Jillian was really sick. So to the point where one of our friends actually encouraged us, like you can, you can be happy, like you can be excited. And I mean, we were happy, but like it was, it was a guarded joy and we were excited. We were talking about the future, but we were still anxious and aware that something could go wrong.
0: And it's hard when you're, you know, when you're so sick and you're, you know, it's really miserable, you know, it's not, it's not fun to be in that situation. However much, you know, you, you want the baby and you're excited for the pregnancy. It's, it's not fun to be, to be that ill, is it?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, So with, with that, with Jillian, with how sick Jillian was, and then also our just being aware that things could go wrong, we were, we were cautiously excited, is how I would describe that first season. We found out Eli's diagnosis at the 18-week ultrasound.
0: So had you had previous ultrasounds before that? I'm not sure what, what the sort of general system is in the States in terms of how many scans
1: you have. That was our first... No, we had a scan early on. Um, I don't remember the timing of that. And we had had like heartbeat ultrasounds. But this was the first like scan and the timing of it was learning the, the gender and.
0: And looking for any anomalies and that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So this was the first really like Mm in-depth scan and the timing of it was, I mean, there's no good time to find something like that out, but when we were at the ultrasound and learned that we would be having a boy, that's when we let our guard down, like, you know, for 18 weeks, we'd had our guard up. Then we see we're having a son we start thinking you know we start dreaming about the future like in that moment it was you know instantaneous and in hindsight so eli's uh condition was anencephaly so his um the development of his brain scalp and skull was hindered through yeah you know, early on and had we known what that sort of condition was or even what a baby ought to look like at 18 weeks, we would have been able to see it on the screen. So our nurse knew immediately that there was something wrong. We were ignorant. You know, we didn't know. So
0: so did she go through then telling you the gender and explaining what she was doing before she told you about the diagnosis?
1: Yeah, she told us, well, this, the, the, um, odd thing about that day was, so we live right around the corner from a hospital. So that's where we did the ultrasound, but that was not our doctor, not our, you know, the person who was going to go over the results. So she didn't tell us the, the diagnosis, but we could tell that there was something wrong more like in hindsight. Like for me, I was just concerned about the heartbeat. Because for Mm -hmm. me, like that seemed to be like the the most significant thing. I, I was unaware of, you know, all the other complications that could happen. So I remember I asked or we asked how the heartbeat was and the way that she said the heartbeat is fine with emphasis on heartbeat. We didn't realize it at the time, but in hindsight, I was like, oh, like she, she said the heartbeat's fine, but she said it in a way that something else was off. So when we got home... I mean, we're starting to think about nursery. We're starting to think about names and all that. I, the first thing I did when I got home was I started writing cards to our parents and to our best friends to kind of share the gender with them. And then we got a phone call from our doctor saying that we need to come in. And that's when we knew something was was wrong. And they weren't, in a good way, they weren't willing to tell us over the phone what it was. They just said, hey, you need to come in and we ne- we got to talk about this in person. So, I mean, we had to wait a few hours. It was just, we're, you know, freaking out, anxious, scared, a type of fear that we had never felt before, where, you know, something is terribly wrong. We're first-time parents, but we have no idea what it is. So, later that day, when we go into our doctor's office, that's when they told us the news and encephaly was his condition. And that's where, like, the grief Uh, and all the the intense pain and and wrestling and sorrow Mm -hmm. came into our story with Eli from that Mm -hmm. point forward.
0: I mean, you've literally gone from being on the highest high to being crashing way down. Could you just tell us a bit about what anencephaly, if I've even pronounced that right, is um, just for listeners of the show who might not know what it is?
1: Yeah. So I, I was explaining it a little bit earlier, but it's a neural tube defect. So early on in pregnancy when the brain, scalp and skull start to develop. And encephaly is a condition where they don't develop properly. So, I mean, I don't know all the particulars, but basically it's a condition that's incompatible with with life after, after birth. At best, we were told that Eli would survive outside the womb maybe hours, but it's all over the place in terms of how long a baby can survive with it but it's it's terminal like there was
0: there's no hope there's no miracle babies who've kind of survived and gone on to grow and thrive
1: right yeah there, there's like two there, there's maybe a few outliers of and I'm not a doctor so I'm not speaking definitively on this but there's like microcephaly so there's similar conditions to anencephaly where there have been a few cases of Survival, but we knew and the doctor graciously made sure that we knew that yeah it, there is no hope for survival
0: and what what options or what what did he suggest in terms of the pregnancy moving forward from that point
1: we were given the decision to either terminate the pregnancy or continue until delivery and birth mm. so that was the option
0: and that really is i mean I guess either way, you know what the outcome is going to be. You know, your son, you know, who you've only just found out is a boy Mm -hmm. is going to die. And you still have this terrible choice. So what did you and your wife decide to do? And how did you reach that decision?
1: That's a good question. It was a horrible experience to have to make that decision. You know, my wife and I are Christians, I am in full-time ministry. And, you know, like growing up, I was one of the kids who debated pro-life um, versus pro-choice. And I know I'm not getting into that debate, but we were, I mean, all of our convictions were really challenged in that moment. And honestly, we felt a, a severe weight of guilt and shame because from our perspective, and you know, all the the popular rhetoric is, you know, the the Christian way is is pro life. Like it shouldn't even be a, a an option on the table, you know. But we were just like, one had been confronted with the most horrible reality ever for our child, and then that that weight of shame was more like we felt hesitant. It, and, and scared to even talk to any of our friends, not that they were, we don't have like judgmental or critical Mm -hmm. friends, but like to even pose the question of, Hey, we're, we're wrestling with what to do felt, it felt like we couldn't talk to people initially. That's how we were Mm -hmm. feeling. So because of, you know, um, our beliefs and all that, we actually felt immediately isolated even more in, in that decision And so, yeah, combining that with just facing the sheer fact that we are going to lose our our first child was devastating. I mean, we felt absolutely paralyzed. Like for that, for the first evening, it was just like weeping for hours and just trying to like survive those first waves of, of grief and sorrow. And then the next day we were like, I mean, we have this decision to make, and we don't even know how to start thinking about it. So we'd found out on a Friday, and then Sunday evening we went to our our really close friend's house, and we were, we were just like, "We need help thinking through this," and we felt at a loss. And it was it was their compassion and listening and encouragement that really helped us have a framework for how to decide based on our beliefs and convictions. So probably the the biggest question and framework, and again, I'm hesitant to talk about this definitively because I don't want to like, I know what it's like to be in this position and feel pressured by other people's <laughs> perspectives and opinions and all that. So for any listeners, I just want to like couch all of this with.
0: Yeah, there is no right all wrong here like it's an imp- it is an impossible decision and i don't think anyone who hasn't been in your precise shoes and no one can be in your precise shoes because everyone's experience is different can judge you on what decision you make either way at this point
1: yeah it's so complex so i'm i'm sharing this with this is what our experience was and this is the framework that helped us the question what would honor the lord was helpful it was like a simple reminder to us because it really wasn't all that complicated of a question to pose. And it gave us the freedom to go home and really think through that question biblically. Um, and so for Jillian and I, the two things that that kind of made the top of the list as we decided this one was um, for Jillian. And this is really profound because, you know, she was bearing most of the burden. She was the one who carried Eli and, and would have to, deliver and anticipate all of that in a really unique way as as his mom she was thinking about all the places in in the scriptures that talk about the fact that suffering is a is a reality of life and though we want to avoid suffering we don't have to run away from it like there's actually there is grace and joy to be found in suffering And so, we didn't want to make a decision based on what would be less suffering, especially in this instance. Both both decisions ended in horror and grief and loss. So, that was helpful in, in just thinking through, we can move forward confidently into this suffering. And then the other thing that helped us think through is thinking about how God chooses to love us, which is graciously and loving us even when we don't love him. I mean, that's the, the story of the scriptures, how God loves people is it's it starts as one way love. Like we don't, we rebel, we can be disobedient and all that, but God loves us graciously. And so we were thinking about what sort of love do we want to show our first child? And even with his condition, and even if it's going to end in further pain and further sorrow for us. We want to show him the love that we've received from our God. And so with those two things, we we decided we are going to continue with this pregnancy. We're going to pray for healing and hope that it happens. But regardless, we're going to love our son, Eli, by carrying on, by continuing to delivery and celebrating his life while also grieving his loss.
0: So I guess you, you were... Praying for healing, but preparing for death in a way. Yeah. And can I ask then, how did you both cope with the rest of, of that pregnancy? And did you plan for Eli's birth and death?
1: We coped with it in very messy ways, <laughs> you know? um, which is how grief is. Yeah, as I think back to that time, so from August of 2018 to, to when he was born in November November 8th, 2018. The way I describe it is if you've ever seen a movie with like war action, if like a grenade or a bomb goes off and there's like that shell shock where everything is ringing and you're just like disoriented. That's how those few months felt. It was just such intense emotion and crawling through every single day. And as I look back, it feels like things were just in black and white. Like there was no color, it was just survival mode. But with the mentality of loving our son and celebrating his life while also preparing for his death and, and grieving his eventual loss, that kind of determined how we stepped forward. I mean, we were very, very sorrowful and sad and angry and confused. And we didn't sugarcoat that. Like, we were really honest with each other, with our friends, with God. But then also we still recognized Eli is with us. Like Eli is our son. He will always be our son. And so we're going to do whatever we can to honor and celebrate him as he's with us. And then when he's no longer with us, we're going to honor him moving forward. I'm sure you have questions about how we did that. But that was kind of our, our mindset of we don't have to choose joy or sorrow. They can coexist as we celebrate his life and lament his death
0: and can I ask um because I think there can't be anything bigger that could challenge a person's faith than losing their child and not just losing them in you know a random accident or something but having to go through this whole process did you find that your faith was challenged at all during this process or did you feel that it got stronger as a result of what you were going through
1: I would say both it was challenged and strengthened and still is like I I still feel like we are wrestling with the Lord and, and you know, wrestling in our faith in, in response to how, how things happened with Eli and then losing our second child, Ro. So, we're still in the thick of our wrestling. At one level, I had a framework for suffering. Like, I had already intellectually worked through some of those bigger questions, like how could a good God allow suffering? So intellectually, I wasn't challenged, if that makes sense. Like, uh, I I know horrible things happen. And though we need to work through those questions, it doesn't negate God's goodness or the fact that he's in control and doing something about it. Yeah, at the same time, what has been helpful is when you when you read the Bible and you read all these men and women of faith, and even, I mean, parents who deal with child loss and and struggling to expand their families. There is a value in, in lament and wrestling with the Lord and, and getting for lack of a better term into conflict with God. And so it's, it's challenged my, our personal relationship with the Lord in the same way that if you get in a conflict with a friend or a spouse, you know, conflict actually deepens intimacy, but it, it is agitating to the relationship. And that's been the same thing. So in other words, like I have never felt further away from the Lord and closer to him at the same time, because we're in conflict. Like we're still wrestling with these questions and why he allowed this to happen. And and even really specific things that we felt like he could have done differently that would have made it easier. So to answer your question simply is it's both been strengthened and challenged. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, and I'd like to return to that in a bit. But first, um, could you tell us when Eli decided to make his entrance into the world and, and what happened then?
1: Yeah, so that was November 8th, and it was two months earlier than we were expecting, which comes with a whole host of other difficulties. And and those are some of the things that we're still wrestling through as we you know are in conflict with God over the timing of his birth. Because we decided that we wanted to, you know, continue the pregnancy. And then in order to honor Eli and celebrate his life, we started doing things as a family to do that. Um, and then even some of the decisions and, and things that we were planning, we weren't able to do because he arrived early. So a couple, just a couple of things. The week that he was born, November 8th, uh, Jillian's water broke on November 7th. We were supposed to get a maternity photo shoot that evening because we wanted to have pictures, you know, remembering Eli. That weekend, we were supposed to have a family photo shoot with my family, with all of Eli's cousins, aunts and uncles, grandparents. We didn't get to do that because he came early. That weekend, we were planning a dedication service at our church for Eli because, again, we wanted to do something special with our church family. We didn't get to do it. We decided to not induce because we wanted to go through at least one Christmas season with Eli with us, and we we're going to do Christmas, you know, things to celebrate him. Couldn't do that because he was born in November. So there's all these things that happened, or that weren't able to happen because Eli came early. So, like his his birth date is a point of deep sorrow and and um, conflict because of all those things, all these things we were planning as a family weren't able to happen. Um,
0: That's really fascinating. Actually, that is something that I hadn't really considered that I guess in one way, you'd had this blessing of being able to prepare and knowing that you had to make the most of this time you had with him because it was all you were going to get. But also then this it was a curse because you didn't get that chance in the end, you know, your plans as you like, you're you're both planners and you planned all these things. And then those plans were also destroyed by, by what happened, which I imagine did sort of pile onto that grief you were feeling. Mm -hmm. Sort of another, another layer, as you said, it's, it's really complex.
1: And to add another layer to it, we had already felt like we were ambushed back in August when we learned his diagnosis, you know, having our guard down and then boom, you know, diagnosis and then all that grief and and difficulty there. And okay, like, we kind of regathered ourselves and, and realized, okay, this is horrible, but we are going to do whatever we can to honor Eli in this season before he's no longer with us. And then we felt ambushed all over again by death because, you know, it, delivery came early. So, that was another disorientation because we thought, okay, we were ambushed once and this is horrible, but we are going to stumble forward. And then we were ambushed all over again. And that just added a whole other layer of, of difficulty.
0: Yeah, and I and you sound a bit like me in that you, you quite like to be in control of things. And this is something where you, you were forced, like control was ripped from you, essentially, and you were forced to kind of have to, to let go of that control of the process and, and what was happening. Mm-hmm. Did you plan for what you would do after he was born in terms of um, once he was born and what, what you, whether you would spend some time with him, whether you would make some memories with him at that point?
1: Yeah, I think that we had, thankfully, we had already come up with kind of a birth plan, um that that was one of the things we were able to do before he arrived we had just started to meet with adula we had a couple other things that we were just starting to do so like even november and december and this is you know kind of the darkness of it the game plan was for us to start planning his funeral and to start figuring out all those details and we weren't able to so I was on the phone in the hospital after Eli was born with a funeral director and starting to figure out those things. We were hoping to have all that, you know, figured out before he was born. Now thankfully, it, it's not like we were blindsided. So we had already had ideas of what we want to do for his funeral, but it was just another, another hit to our souls to not even get the time to plan and prepare in what we were expecting when we already knew he wasn't, he was going to be taken away from us.
0: And how did you feel when you saw him for the first time?
1: Oh, that's, that's getting in deep. Initially, for both of us, it was very, very deep grief. And the reason, at least for me, is we were still holding on to hope that he would be born alive. And so that's what I was hoping. I was hoping to hear him cry. That was what I wanted to hear.
0: Did you know that, because I think, did he die before Jillian went into labor? And did you know that? We
1: we don't know. We decided to not be informed. So we actually didn't want him, him to be monitored because that would just made it that much more difficult for Jillian. Also, he he came a lot quicker than we were expecting in terms of labor, like, the doctors were telling us it was going to take up to a couple of days and i mean jillian was a champion she labored all night um we had got to the hospital i don't remember the exact time but you know evening and he was born just before 10:30 the following morning but the doctors were all saying you know get ready for a couple of days and then he he arrived 10:25 on november 8th it, it's hard to pinpoint in terms of severity, there's so many intense moments of grief and pain, but that was, that was one of the most significant moments of, yeah, of pain I've ever felt in my life. I mean, we, the the sort of weeping that you can't even control when you feel like you're, you're not even able to breathe. But eventually when, you know, we, we were able to start admiring him and his fingers and his toes and, you know, his hips and, and all that. And even his condition, I mean, anencephaly is not a, a pretty condition, but even just looking at that um, and, and the marks of his condition, we weren't like turned away. We were drawn in and it, it made us love him even more. One, one piece that I didn't include earlier is at that first ultrasound back in August, and many ultrasounds after that point because we had we were able to meet with a specialist basically as many ultrasounds as we wanted we can could come in for and he regularly had his fist up in front of his face
0: little boxer
1: <laughs> yeah exactly so so our nickname for him was our little warrior and so actually because of his condition and because he passed away during delivery his his body and skin was was bruised at different places but at the same time, it's like, that's our little warrior, you know, he, he fought. And while it was really painful, we were also filled with such adoration for him. I mean, that he's our son, you know. So, thankfully, and we're so thankful for this, we had basically up to three days in the hospital if we wanted to. So, all of our, our immediate family was able to come see him, our best friend's a photographer. So, she was there taking pictures and that was just a really sweet moment and opportunity to, to have all of, our, all of his aunts and uncles, grandparents hold him, get pictures with him. Yeah, so we, we cherish those days and those moments that we had in the hospital with him um, because we were able to really admire and cherish you know, all the little features about him before we had to say goodbye.
0: And I think you've already sort of touched on how your plans for the funeral were disrupted and you didn't quite get the time that you wanted to, to prepare. But I guess you'd already thought about some of that. Did you change any of your plans after he was born?
1: You know, the um, actual planning of the funeral. So we had a, a funeral with family and friends, and then we had a memorial service a few weeks after that. We hadn't actually sat down and nailed down the details of it prior to Eli being born. So the first week after we had returned home is when we really got to planning. And I'm really, really thankful for the the funeral home that we went with because they had experienced a loss of a baby as well. So they knew what it was like. They worked with a local organization in our town that pays for the funeral costs of bereaved parents. And they also this funeral home knows of a monastery in the States that as a ministry builds caskets, but donates children, caskets for children. Amazing! I mean, it was incredible. And just some of those things that that in really unique ways, people and organizations were able to come alongside us so that we could really honor Eli and celebrate his life and, and grieve his death made it so that we could really focus on that. So those were things that we didn't know about until after Eli was born, but it made planning uh, a lot easier, not having to worry about the the financial costs and different things like that. Um, but in terms of planning the actual services, so that's something that I I love planning and I love thinking about like flow of events, and that's why I like writing. I'm more of like on the artistic side of things, and so for me, actually planning his funeral and services was one of the ways that I was able to really love and honor him because I was able to you know to to really pick how we were going to to move through grief and lament while also celebrating Eli, picking the songs and the Bible verses, even just being able to choose who would be involved with each service. For us, it was another way to love Eli and and celebrate his life.
0: And I want to sort of circle back now to uh, your faith and lamentation. So you you talk a lot on your blog about the role of lamentation in faith and why it's something that's perhaps not really talked about much in modern church life and, and religious teachings. How would you define lamentation and how do you think it can help people who have faith who are grieving?
1: I, for shorthand, I define lament as wrestling honestly with God. Now, the, like the non-religious definition of lament is basically voicing sorrow. Um, but biblical lament is bringing your sorrow to God. And what you see, so like a really popular book in the Bible of songs and poems and prayers are the Psalms. There's 150 songs in that book. And it's meant to be the, it's kind of like a hymnal, an an ancient hymnal that God's people have used for thousands of years. Out of those 150 Psalms, over a third of them are laments. So over a third of them are talking to the Lord very honestly about pain and sorrow and death and doubt and really, I mean, confrontational questions and protests and yeah, really raw, raw raw songs and poems there. Unfortunately, and I think this isn't just like a, a religious reality. I think it's more of a a Western cultural reality. We tend to shy away from the engagement of negative, not even, I mean, difficult emotions. And that's especially true in the songs of, you know, religious worship. I mean, I could go on and on. I don't know if you have more questions about that. But I I think it's both a Western difficulty that we have with grief and darker emotions, which makes sense. I mean, of course, we want to be happy and we want to feel joy. But there's a tendency to feel like, well, you have to choose between either you're going to engage your sadness and and you're going to be this depressed emo person Or, you know, let's choose happiness and strength and let's pull ourselves up. There is a reality in which our emotions, both difficult and positive, both of them are good and necessary. And they actually, they work together. And that's, I think that's true of human nature. And that's definitely true of what you see in the Bible and and worship in the Bible as well.
0: I think there's also something perhaps around the the community as well, though, because a church is... A community and you've sort of already mentioned particularly in terms of your kind of a, initial diagnosis and feeling quite isolated and able to talk about that but I, I wonder if that kind of role of worship as a community and whether those sort of uh, those psalms and those um, sort of teachings that talk about those kind of difficult emotions and sort of bring them to light if including those in sort of communal worship could perhaps help those who are grieving and whether that is a consideration at all.
1: I firmly believe that lamenting (laughs) regularly would benefit the church, people within the church, people outside of the church so much because on any given Sunday, people are coming in with sorrows and, and brokenness and difficulty. And if they're not experiencing it, people in the community are, people in our world are. Um, and so I think there's a tendency that we we feel like we need to sing happy songs or just declare the promises of God over our pain. But what you see people doing in the Bible is they're they're singing about their sorrow and they're they're recognizing the truths about who God is in their suffering, but they're also being like, but this doesn't feel like you're being good to us mm-hmm. in this moment. I mean, you have you have commands in the Bible to weep with those who weep and all these songs that corporately bring communal suffering into, into the sanctuary. Yeah. I think it would be a huge, huge benefit if we relearned how to sing songs of sorrow regularly. And I hope we get there eventually.
0: It's fascinating. Actually. I feel like we could talk about this all day, but I do want to move on. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we can. (laughs) So sadly, you lost your second son, Ro, to miscarriage in May 2020. So just last year, I think. Could you tell us a bit about when you decided that you were ready to try for another baby and about Ro's short life?
1: So it was a long process and part of our grief, just going back to what are our plans for our family now that we've lost Eli? And honestly, we didn't know. Um, we We knew that we still had a desire to have children in our home and I mean, even from before Eli, we, we have a desire to have a blended family. We would love to pursue foster care adoption as well. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we, over the months and and year after losing Eli, we, we had conversations about it, but we also recognize, we just need to keep grieving. Like we can't rush into, you know, trying to get pregnant again. And our doctor encouraged us to really take time so that Jillian's body could heal and that we could, you know, mentally, emotionally heal as well. And when I say heal, I don't mean actually like, I don't mean get over it, but, you know, yeah. Yeah. experience a little bit of restoration and get back to some sense of normalcy. And so it was a little over a year after Eli was born that we decided we we were thinking of, you know, trying trying for more children And right as the pandemic started, so early in March is when we found out, I think it was early March. I always get these dates wrong, but we found out that Jillian was pregnant with our second and it was such a different experience. I mean, I remember when Jillian told me she was pregnant with Eli, I literally went to the floor Mm -hmm. uh, out of like reverence and awe. I was like, we're parents. Like I was just, you know, Mm -hmm. floored literally with Roe. It was more of a okay, like almost like gearing up and and recognizing this is this is gonna this is gonna be difficult, and we're gonna be an anxious mess. You can't not anticipate more loss when you've experienced losing a child like it's just on the forefront of your mind, so there were some concerning signs around i think it was nine or so weeks, and then we went to the specialist that we had seen through Eli and learned that, yeah, the baby had miscarried around six weeks. And so it was a whole other, I mean, a second experience of, and even hearing the same phrase that we heard when Eli was born, there's no heartbeat. So hearing for another child of ours, there's no heartbeat. We've lost another child. And that was, that was in May. So this past May, that we, we lost row and there's even a whole host of complexities and complications of, you know, kind of navigating. We're still grieving the loss of Eli and experiencing what's called early grief with Eli. Now we've lost a, a second baby, but in a totally different way, totally different set of circumstances. And you know, how basically we had these, all these questions of like, uh, how do we do this? You know, our grief felt different. We we thought it would be one thing and it wasn't. Like I was expecting to kind of go right back into the dark pit of of depression and despair. And it was more of a numbness that I felt after losing Roe um for a number of different reasons, but it was just different. And that's disorienting.
0: Yeah. And I I don't know. I wonder if part of that is because you've been through it part of it maybe is because you've been through it before and I guess you almost know what to expect but also because as you say whenever you get pregnant after a loss you always have that at the back of your mind and I wonder if part of you rightly or wrongly is almost preparing yourself for that eventuality again and that doesn't mm-hmm. make the grief necessarily any less um it you know it's a different experience um but as you say it it maybe means leads your brain to shut off almost and shut down to protect yourself from those from those difficult emotions which inevitably come Mm -hmm. out at some point but perhaps not immediately
1: yeah and and also Yeah, I think you're right. Like, and we—I remember even telling family and friends, and this was hard to admit, and I know that they hated hearing this, but like, we were expecting this. Mm -hmm. Like, you, there was just no way to not anticipate more loss, and so that might have contributed to the lack of intense grief. But I also, I mean, Eli's condition and walking through pregnancy, knowing that he wasn't going to survive, was really. Unique and extremely intense, mm. and so um, yeah, miscarriage is is just different, and it had its own set of intensity and sadness and sorrow, but it was just different. And it was helpful; it has been helpful to kind of free ourselves up to not force ourselves to compare our grief or you know figure it out, but just to engage what we're feeling, you know, process it and and keep. Dealing with our emotions and not like judging our emotions or comparing how we should feel or what others think we should feel. Let's just feel what we feel, talk about it, and and keep moving forward in our grief.
0: And you have a blog and an Instagram account where you talk about um, both of your sons and your experiences and your faith. What made you decide to speak out about baby loss as a bereaved father?
1: It's a good question. There were three primary reasons that I s- started writing. One was um, it was helpful for me. So th- that sounds selfish, but I knew that I needed an outlet. You know, like I said, I'm, I'm more of a creative thinker and I love presenting ideas, storytelling. I'm a teacher. And so to be able to write, and express and tell a story was helpful for me in terms of grief and processing. And along with that, and more importantly to me, it was, has been ways to honor my children. You know, I, I think I've thought often I've, I've written about this in one post that my parents are our, me and my brothers are biggest cheerleaders sometimes to a fault. Like they, are always getting our backs, always celebrating progress. Like they, I have amazing parents um, who, you know, really (laughs) are really all about their, their kids. And for me writing and sharing about Eli and Roe has been my part of my fatherhood. And I know that that'll look different for other dads and moms, but for me, it's the way that I have expressed my love and adoration for my kids and continuing to, to do that. Like they're, they're always going to be a part of our lives and family. The third reason. So for my own healing, for, to honor my kids, but then also to help others, unfortunately, you know, social media, and I think this is changing, but tends to be more of the positive, happy family moments. And, you know, let's polish ourselves up and present all of the, the happy things, but life is hard. And, it's difficult. There's brokenness. There's loss and there's grief. And I I know that there is a value, and even just your podcast <laughs> is evidence of this in sharing our stories and sharing our pain and not feeling the need to sugarcoat it because we need to we need to be able to talk about the difficult things and, and lament and and engage these darker realities of life rather than kind of keep them in a the corner and in the shadows. So that was the other thing. I knew that. I, I hope that me sharing my own pain and stories helps other people either have language for their own loss or inspires them to figure out what that looks like for their own grief.
0: Thank you. And, you know, I've I've read a lot of your kind of your blog posts, your Instagram posts, and, you know, your writing is really beautiful and quite profound. And I think, you know, it's certainly um Yeah, I think it helped me think about things in a slightly different way. So I really would um, encourage people to check it out. And yeah, just to finish off, could you tell people where they can find and connect with you online?
1: So my Instagram is Clint D Watkins. And my website is frailfather.com. So frail as in weak, father.com.
0: And can I ask, how did you come up with that name? Why did you decide on that name?
1: I, so when I decided I wanted to share Eli's story, that was still when Jillian was pregnant with him. And I, that's just how I felt and how I still feel. And if we're fortunate enough to have more children, I will still be a frail father, especially connecting it with with masculinity. There is a tendency to think that strength is you know, this independent, raw, rugged, uh, moving forward, you know, nothing can hurt us and all that. But I think that there is a lot of strength in being able to admit our weakness, our pain, our sorrow. You see Jesus doing that. You see a lot of people, really mighty warriors in the Bible who are also, you know, willing to engage their emotions. And I don't say that as like, look at me, I'm so weak and manly. It's more so that one how I felt as a father I just feel often like I'm weak and broken because of losing Eli and Roe but I also think there's a value in being able to talk about that and admit we aren't perfect we are hurting we're broken but that's part of parenthood
0: I think that's a wonderful place on which to finish thank you so much for sharing your story and coming on the podcast Clint thanks for having me Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Skies Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website
1: footprintsonourhearts.com.